Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 417. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I am thrilled to be bringing you a conversation, the fourth one that was recorded in 2023 between myself and my dear friend, Linda Tai. Let me tell you about Linda before we get into the conversation. Linda Tai, LMSW, ERT 200, CLYL describes herself as a somatic therapist and trauma therapist, a freelance educator, public speaker, and storyteller, group facilitator, collaborator, infiltrator, cross-pollinator, community builder, an agent of change, a former child refugee, and a happy human being. And the joyfulness that comes from Linda's spirit is infectious and undeniable. I am so fortunate to have had another opportunity to spend time with Linda that we recorded for you for this podcast episode. And unlike the previous three, which were focused on my grief journey, today we're talking about psychodrama structures and what that is and how it's used for healing and how Linda is working with psychodrama structures. It's so interesting, so beautiful, and I'm thrilled to be heading to San Francisco to assist Linda in facilitating one of these retreats for psychodrama structures in February 2024, which is very exciting, and I hope to have the opportunity to participate with her in the future as well. But you also can be a participant in these trainings if it's something that you're interested in. In the show notes, you'll find links to be informed in everything Linda's doing. If you've caught the other interviews I've done with Linda here on Therapy Chat, you know that she has a training program that she delivers throughout the year in somatic 
healing from trauma and it's very affordable and accessible and it's extremely high quality. I've recommended it to so many people and everyone I know who has taken the course, which I've also taken, has said it was amazing. I know that she's starting one of those as we speak, possibly even today. I'm not sure if today's the first day or if it was another day this week, but it's very, it's getting going for the the winter uh, slash spring 2024 right now. And she offers this continuously. So you can find all this on her website and all the links are in the show notes. Psychodrama Structures, loosely, I'll just tell you, is about healing from the effects of having a family of origin that did not meet your needs in whatever way. And so it's attachment work and it's somatic work and it's movement work. And there's a lot of nuance to it and a lot of ways that it can be delivered, but I cannot wait to be with Linda to uh, witness this in person myself in February. And the last thing I'm going to tell you before we get into the episode is just that if you are a trauma therapist who is looking for community and support and you would like to learn together with others online who get it, what our work is like, and approach it from a perspective of hope, compassion, and joy, as well as humor and connection, support, learning, curiosity, then Trauma Therapist Network would be a wonderful place for you. And if you're on the waiting list, you have up until January 31st to come into our community. I will open up the registration again two more times this year. But right now, this is only for people who are on the waiting list and for therapists who do want to join. There's still time to get on the waiting list. If you join the waiting list before January 31st, 2024, we'll send you a registration link right away. So if you're not on the waiting list and you're a trauma therapist who wants to be part of this, you can find the link to the waiting list at go.traumatherapistnetwork.com slash join. That link is also in the show notes. So let's dive into my conversation with Linda. Once again, Linda Ty LMSW is a friend and a wonderful healer and a beautiful soul. And I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and with me again, because I'm very fortunate, is my colleague and friend, Linda Ty. Linda, welcome back to Therapy Chat, and thank you for being with us again today. It's an absolute pleasure to be back here with you, Laura. It's, it's my pleasure, too. And oh, I'm so excited because we've talked several times, and today we're going to cover a topic that I'm very interested in learning about, and I know our audience will be too, which is psychodrama structures, which I know nearly nothing about, and you know quite a bit. So um, before we get into it, though, will will you just tell our audience, for those who are listening for the first time, who you are, a little bit more about you and what you do? Sure. So I'm a somatic therapist, I'm a trauma therapist. And I'm also a person who's in my own recovery from addiction, from the impact of war and forced displacement upon myself 
and my family and the ways in which that then impacted the ways my parents raised us. And so it's been a, a lifetime journey of growth, of healing. And I'd like to think that uh, the byproduct of that is that I'm now a trauma therapist and a somatic therapist. Yeah, a beautiful outcome of that that experience and what it was. Yes. But the work you're doing out in the world is so important and very needed. And I'm glad that I've recently, only recently discovered you and your work. But so you are normally in the state of Alaska in the United States. And you want to tell people where you are right now, where you're coming from? For sure. So today I'm on the, the lands of the Wurundjeri people, also known as Melbourne, Australia. You might hear parrots <laughs> flying overhead and calling. This is where I was raised. So I was born in Vietnam. Uh, we lived in a refugee camp for six months in Malaysia, uh, sorry, in, in uh, Malaysia and Indonesia. And then uh, I spent uh, a good 30 years of my life in Australia, in Melbourne, and then did concentric circles outwards in search of home and discovered Alaska. And it just nourished a part of me that I didn't realize was so dehydrated and shriveled up inside. <laughs> Growing up in the city, I always felt that there was something wrong with me, that I hadn't found the right pieces of the jigsaw puzzle of work and partner and leisure activities and home life. And yet I realized that after discovering Alaska, it was the case of the landscape needed to reflect me. And there's a tonic that wildness and wilderness and a direct and personal relationship with food, warmth, shelter, and water provided for me at a soul-nourishing level that I wasn't able to access in the city. I think that's resonating with me on some kind of a cellular level <laughs> because there's something about that that just feels so true. And also, I I know many people who have not many, but a handful of people who I, personal friends of mine who, who moved to Alaska and found something so different there from the city where we grew up. And it was like something so needed, something about like a soul calling to a place. Yes. I found that living in the city, we're living in the cycles of consumption and maintenance and the cycles of nature are the cycles of creation and maintenance and destruction. And that is inherent in living in the cycles of nature and the cycles of the season. So we're always feasting and always famining and there's something that's so enlivening about it. Yeah, like following nature's real rhythms instead of, yeah, the like city life is like more, 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 never stop, mm -hmm. never pause. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And I think about the words of Joseph Campbell, who's a comparative philosopher. And he says that I don't think that people are in search of the meaning of life. I think people are in search of the feeling of feeling alive. And so how you live is so much more important than what you do. And that's something that I've always known because I never quite felt that I adulted <laughs> very well. I didn't like what I was being taught in terms of adulting. I knew I needed to do it, but it just didn't land for me because the how needed to include a depth of relationality with, with something primal, which is 
you know, food and warmth and shelter and water. And so fishing and hunting and growing our own food and we live without running water by intention. We cut our own firewood. It's a wonderful way to live. And so that actually created the foundation for me to have the spare time and the capacity to get to know myself. And so in Alaska is where I discovered meditation and yoga and the practices of meditation and yoga caused me to become aware of, of all of my addictions and compulsive behaviors, the ways in which I'd avoid and deny and deflect and minimize and all of those defense mechanisms. And then was asked to teach meditation and yoga in addiction recovery settings, outpatient, in residential community-based settings. And then along the way in that journey, I bought a book on the day that it came out, which is The Body Keeps the Score. And I was actually catching a plane later on that afternoon to go and travel to be with my Ashtanga yoga teachers. And so I have this intense period of reckoning. And at the at the time it was it was wonderful. Like I needed to have a come apart. And then a friend of mine said to me, hey, come and study with Bessel van der Kolk and Leisha Sky." Right. And then she's telling me about a week-long workshop that she did with them. And I was, because I just loved the book so much. And then Courtney says, oh, and they do this psychodrama structures thing where you put the family of origin out there and everyone's like crying because it's such moving work. And as soon as she said everyone was crying, I was like, nah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't sound fun to me, right? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> because I would do anything to avoid feeling my feelings in real time on my own, let alone in front of other people. Yes. I can and relate. meditation and yoga and and you know, being in 12-step groups allowed me to feel my feelings in real time all by myself. And that was actually huge for me. And yet when Courtney said, oh, when Bessel's old, he's going to die soon. Like that was the thing. <laughs> that was the thing that made me go, okay, I'm going to go do it. <laughs> I'm going to go do it. And prior to that, I'd been, you know, I'd been in the company of meditation and yoga teachers whom I sought out. And so Bessel was another teacher whose company I was going to sort out, to seek out. And so, I don't know, 2016, I attend Bessel and Leisha's week on workshop at Esalen. And Leisha's nonverbal experiential exercises caused me to realize how traumatized it actually was and yet unaware of it. Mm. And then seeing Bessel present The Body Keeps the Score, that I'm seeing my life on a series of PowerPoint slides while taking the input in through my ears rather than, you know, by myself with a book, uh, caused me to have another layer of experience of myself. And I was just numbed out and dissociated and disconnected and blank the entire time as my survival strategy. And yet I had enough capacity to be curious. So I went back the following year. And by that point in time, I'd done my own brain spotting work. I think I started foraying into IFS and I was able to be more present 
And then the year after that, I actually got to do my own psychodrama structure of putting my family of origin out there in the space and receive the experience of having an ideal mother. And that was life changing for me. And yet, and so this is, I think, chapter 18 of The Body Keeps the Score. And it's the whole piece about how we have these relational mental maps of the world that we haven't yet explored. And when we explore it, not as an intellectual concept, but rather in three-dimensional space, and I look around the space with people with whom I have a felt sense of relative safety, and I ask someone, could you take on the role of my real mother? And then I place my real mother exactly where she exists spatially in relationship to me, which was way out of arm's reach, like way out of arm's reach. And then I get to shape that body into taking on the shape of my mother. And then my feelings come up, right? And, and because my feelings were just so overwhelming, Bessel offers me a support person, a contact person, who's able to offer me physical, visceral contact in the ways in which my body needs that co-regulatory presence so that I can then move through whatever it is that comes up with my mother being there in the space and with whatever it is that comes up for me because you can't do trauma without doing grief and within a dysfunctional or under-resourced family of origin, there are two dynamics. One is homeostasis collusion and the other one is impaired mourning. And so the task of learning how to grieve and that it's okay to grieve and that it's okay to feel my feelings in real time as they arise are all interwoven as part of the substrate of this work. And it taught me the value of human touch and human contact that is absolutely necessary in order to work through the depths of what so many of us hold. And yeah. 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 I don't mean to interrupt. Please keep going. Yeah, in that particular piece of work that I did with Bessel, I got to offer my real mother an ideal support person of her very own. And as soon as my like as soon as that person sat next to my mother or sat next to the person who was playing the role of my real mother, there was this visceral shift for me where I became aware of all the ways in which I had inhibited my joyous life force energy in order to take care of my mother, who at the age of 19 was living in Australia with a man to whom she's had an arranged marriage, a newborn child and a two-and-a-half-year-old child, far from the land of her ancestors and without her elders to help guide her. And oh, wow. we all children adapt on an energetic level in terms of what we're aware of is available and isn't available for us. And to move through the grief of what arose when my mother, when the person who played the role of my mother got a support person uh, was, was profound for me. And then once that moved through, I was given the opportunity to choose an ideal mother. 
who would have been there for me back there, back then in the ways in which I needed. And so I looked around the space and picked someone to take on the role of the ideal mother. And for that person to hold me, to to run their hands over my head and to stroke my face and for their body to be available to my nervous system brought up another layer of grief for what I didn't get that I'm now getting as a somatic imprint. And that's where, as the protagonist, I then got to, if I wanted to, the capacity to ask for what I needed back there, back then. And I said things like, if you were my ideal mother back there, back then, you would have sung to me. My mother was very depressed, yeah. And, and, I, and I would have heard your voice. And my voice and your voice would have interacted. And so in that moment, the person playing that role started singing to me and rocking with me and I am like blubbering and she's offering me the missing experiences of development that I didn't get back there, back then. And so this continues until it comes to a place of closure, meaning that I've, I've become imprinted with what it would have been like to have experienced an ideal mother. And how I moved through the world fundamentally changed after that. I got re-imprinted with the experience of secure attachment in an hour. And I remember- It was only an hour? My gosh. Yes. Yes. And- you know, I'm feeling so raw because I've just blubbered in front of 45 people and my friend Courtney was actually there with me and she said, hey, let's go to the sea baths. And I said, yeah, sure. And then she said, can we, can I hold something for you? And I said, yeah, sure. And in that moment I went, holy schmoly, that's how people with ideal mothers move through the world. People offer them things and they just say yes. There's no barriers to receiving. There's no hyper-independence. There's no, I'm fine. I can do it by myself. It was profound. I, I totally know what you mean with that. I totally feel what you're saying there. Yeah. I go back to my life the following week. I'm sitting there with my clinical supervisor. And normally I sit a little bit askew. And I walk into his office and I sit down direct front and center. <laughs> and I, in that moment, I was like, holy wow, I don't have to keep skirting at the edges of life and at the edges of people's periphery in order for me to experience safety. And I had no idea I did that. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I'd been a student of Buddhism for, quite, uh, for a while at this point in time. So I knew that the difference between conditional happiness and unconditional happiness and how there are desires, the fulfillment of which your happiness depends. And then there are desires and desiring in such a way that the fulfillment of those desires doesn't actually imp impact your fundamental sense of well-being and happiness in the world. And so I got that and I was living that as an intellectual construct that I was putting into practice in my life. However, my capacity to 
access that as uh, an instinctual, innate way of moving through the world was available to me. Because no matter what happens in the world, I still have this. This meaning this somatic imprint of love, safety, of being delighted in, of someone who's got me no matter what. And so after that, I decided I was going to learn how to do this stuff because it was so amazing, like amazing. And by this point in time, I'd done my brain spotting training. I'd done my IFS training. I was in sets and what is like a therapy training and I continued with that because of the way in which level two of sensory motor psychotherapy works with the developmental actions of attachment and the missing experience somatically. And yet with psychodrama structures, the way, the way Bessel has shared it into the world, it's group participants offering the somatic experience to each other rather than me as, the, as a therapist. And I do have clients with whom I work with in, in individual psychotherapy where I do offer that kind of deep holding. However, I offer it with that clinical awareness of right message, wrong timing is wrong message, right intervention, wrong timing is wrong intervention. And we have to work the trauma out of the nervous system first before the new experience of attachment can actually land. Because otherwise it lands through the trauma and can actually uh, reinforce adaptive parts that may be maladaptive. Yeah. And I also just love group work and I... I don't know. I was just in love. like, And my ADHD brain just loved how there was just like 15 things going on at the same time. It was clinically like so juicy for me. It's beautiful. And I can see in this moment, Laura, you've got so many questions about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm listening and hanging on every word for sure. But yeah, so many thoughts are coming up and so many feelings too. I think one thing I'm curious about as I'm listening is, I don't know how, well, you're a great teacher, so maybe you can, but I don't know how easy it will be to explain this, but I've experienced myself with brain spotting, how one session can heal something, not everything all at once, but something, something very deep, something that's been a longstanding problem that you didn't know what really it was about. And then it can, and so in a way, and I don't want to be dismissive of it, but in a way it almost feels kind of like magic when, when you have that kind of experience, it's, it's so mysterious. You don't really know for sure exactly why that happened. You can analyze it, but it's like, I don't know what was happening, but now everything's different. And this is different because there's, even though brain spotting is, I think, very relational, you know, if it's delivered that way, it's intended to be. I'm curious if you can, I'm not sure if I can configure my question properly, but if you can sort of share how the one experience can create that lasting somatic imprint that was missing the whole time for maybe 40 years or more, you know, and then, and then, and I'm not saying I'm skeptical. I'm just curious to, if you can explain that a bit more. 
Yeah, there's a couple of layers to this. So I love trauma reprocessing techniques like brace boarding and EMDR. They can help to remove the activation or the arousal associated with a traumatic event. They can also help to join the dots uh, in terms of fragments of memory. They can also help to isolate a fragment of memory and work specifically with that in such a way that achieves closure. And yet there's the removal, for lack of a better word, of the traumatic memory or the traumatic imprint. And yet we need to place positive imprints and lay down the neuronal networks for those. Okay. I'm with you. Yeah. Yes. And so that's where the somatic imprinting of of attachment is so helpful. And then for some of us to be able to enter into the depths of grief in order to be able to speak the truth of our inner landscape to ourselves, let alone in front of other people, having that support person, that contact person, that physicality of someone who's got your back or is sitting by your side can 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 help us to enter into that domain. And then the three-dimensional spatial representation of the real parent figures in our lives also elicits a somatic response in us that we otherwise wouldn't be aware of. It would be a cognitive exercise. Like how do you feel it towards your mother? It's very different to let's ask someone to represent your mother and put your mother physically in the space in such a way that feels like a reflection of what you've internalized. Mm. So I've seen people put a parent who's here just out of arm's reach and then they'll spin the parent so that they're facing the other way and seated up on a chair, right? And yeah, and and, and that elicits something in us and brings it forward for our awareness to bring it to completion mm. in such a way that's very direct and po- potentially too fast. And yet when there's that support person, that contact person, that container, you know, we're able to move through it. And then the other piece of this is that when we can externalize something, we can then begin to work with it. We can then begin to create distance from it if necessary or move closer to it or step out of the protagonist role, ask someone else to play the role of me so that I can actually walk around the space to be able to view this from another perspective or another angle. And it's that piece that folks who are trained in expressive arts uh, therapies are aware of when you can externalize something you can begin to work with it from another vantage point. Yeah. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, 
Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. That all feels right when you talk about it. Thank you for taking the time to explain that part. I have a thought too about just how, like adoption, the refugee experience and um, the way it's spoken about, at least Western culture-wise, tends to be very um, like there was a bad thing that happened, people were rescued, and then they all lived happily ever after because they were safe, you know, and that's behind them. And again, like with adoption, it's so hard to be able to name, and adoption is just an example, any early attachment loss, being able to name, I feel this way, or I needed this and I didn't get it, and how that is in the body, or the felt sense experience back then of the terror and the the horror and the powerlessness and the things that go along with those types of experiences. We can't name it because it's pre-verbal and somatically held often and so early we don't have often uh, a cognitive memory of it. I just, I don't know. There's just something about the way that these experiences, these um, methods allow one to connect to what's in there that we don't know and then work with it. There's so much richness in the human experience and the layers of ambiguous grief, the layers of I didn't get something and the not getting of that experience has left a pervasive emptiness on my inner landscape and it's unnameable. It's the grief of neglect. It's the grief of misattunement. It's the not knowing what I don't know. It's the not talking about the things that you don't want to talk about so that I don't have to know what it is that you don't want to speak about. Mm. And that's where I find great power in bringing people together who have similar lived experiences. So I know that Tian Dayton do, does a lot of work with adult children of alcoholics and there are other there are other groups that come together and I love working with groups where it's a mixed bag of everyone and I also really appreciate creating a space for adult children, refugees and immigrants, as well as former child, teen, adult, refugees and immigrants to come together and to, to be a container for the grief that's specific to us and to also reshape what it is that I learned from Bessel to make it more applicable 
for people who've experienced displacement. So specifically, I remember one structure where the person brought the, their real mother into the space and then instead of giving their mother an ideal support person, I mean, which is very Eurocentric and the hyper-focus on the individual, we actually gave the person who played the role of the real mother a person who represented an ideal society. Wow. Yeah. And, and the shift in terms of not just the grief, but also the possibilities that opened up for the protagonist as a result of experiencing her real mother, experiencing an ideal society that would have welcomed her, that would have given her the space to move through the grief that would have given her culturally appropriate supports for adjusting to life in a new country, um, an ideal society that wasn't burning crosses on the front lawn. And this piece about the realm of possibility that opens up is what we're actually talking about when we're doing psychodrama structures. Yes, there's the re-imprinting of a secure attachment template and there's a world of possibilities that opens up for you as the individual when you see your parents being taken care of in the ways in which they needed help back there, back then. Because that's the beginnings of the inverted parent-child relationship. It's the right. beginnings parentification and adultification for those of us that are raised in under-resourced families, which then gets labeled as dysfunctional families. I don't want to take us off track too far, but I was going to say that, you know, opening up the realm of possibility where, you know, it, it removes the idea that if my mother had been an ideal mother and she would have done everything right, and I would have been, I would have gotten everything I needed and everything would have been okay, is never going to be possible because she is also a person who has her own needs. And even in mother archetype, it's all about only focusing on the needs, you know, of others. And mother doesn't have needs. Mother care gives for others. But mother was a woman and then a girl before that who had needs. And when we're talking intrapsychically in terms of the internal landscape, the fact that we conflate our real mother with the ideal mother is where we get all those tensions within ourselves as well as between ourselves and our real mothers in real life because I'm so painfully aware of all the ways in which I would have been happier and had so much more possibility in life if my real mother had have had qualities of my ideal mother. So we separate the two so that I can actually grieve the ship that sailed. And when I can grieve the ship that sailed, I'm not just grieving on behalf of my inner child, I'm actually engaging in ancestral grief 
like I'm actually grieving for my mother in a lot of ways, the grief that yes. she probably holds on to as guilt in regards to who she couldn't be for me. I'm picturing a 19-year-old, technically adult, but barely, with a very young two-year-old toddler escaping a country that wasn't safe to be in anymore. So doing everything she could do to get you out of that, but she didn't have, she wasn't all powerful to make all that stuff that was happening there not happen. And all the things that were happening around and her only being so young herself. And that's the part where you said the ideal society. That's what I thought of is ideally you wouldn't have had to leave. You would have been able to stay with your culture and it would have been safe, but that's the ship that sailed. Yes. Yes. And then the other part of this is the child fantasy, as in in psychoanalytics, the fantasy of the P-H-A-N-T-A-S-Y, of wanting to rescue or save or caretake your parents from their pain as a way of actually mitigating my own pain. I actually got to play that out in terms of giving my mother ideal support person, ideal society, uh, ideal parents, or an ideal best friend in Australia who would have helped her to move and navigate through life here, or an ideal elder. Uh, When we came to Australia, there was one elder in amongst two or three dozen Vietnamese families because the old folks we had to leave behind because it was such a treacherous journey, right? So there were There are many ways in which we can imagine what would have changed things for me back there, back then. But I get to play out that child fantasy and have it actually resolve, become substantiated. And then I can have the experiencing of an ideal mother who then says to me, if I were your ideal mother back there, back then, I would have taken care of you. You wouldn't have had to take care of me. And the the grief of that, as well Mm. as the imprinting of that. Yeah, because we've now separated the real mother from the ideal mother. And that fantasy isn't getting in the way. No, I can't. I can't feel this because I have to take care of her. She won't be okay if I feel this. So that gets dealt with and then you can feel it. Yes. And then in my real life, for me, right, I'm not saying this works out for everyone, but for me, what happened was now that those two got separated, the real mother and the ideal mother, I got to play out my child fantasy. I can now be with my real mother as she is because I'm now no longer projecting my losses and longings onto her. And I have that self-energy the capacity to bear the truth of the impact of forced displacement on her instead of being so self-absorbed with me. Not that there's anything wrong with being self-absorbed, but that's what trauma does. And that's, you know, that's part of growing up. Is to be Real adulting. Real adulting. That's what real adulting is. <laughs> yes, yes. Is seeing our parents as people. 
And to then be able to see my mother through the lens of her losses and longings that she then projects onto the people in her life, including me, or withholds herself from owning and therefore sublimates or displaces those feelings in other ways. And to not feel like I need to rescue her or caretake her either. I can simply be with the awareness. You can be you and she can be her and nobody has to change for it to be a loving, connected relationship. And we can be individuals who are together. Yeah. And then in terms of, I mean, within the gender binary, right, doing work with um, my real father within a psychodrama structure allowed me once again to separate the real from the ideal and to also recognize on a deeper level the ways in which I had tried so hard to shape all of my um, intimate partners into taking on the role of the ideal father I never got to have while at the same time setting them up for failure. <laughs> there was no way they were going to be able to fulfill that, right? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so then I get I would get to be angry with them and lash out at them in ways that I wasn't able to with my real father. Right? Mm. <laughs> so. Mm. <laughs> so resonant. It is. It's so resonant. And yet within other people's structures... You know, I, I had the experience with one person where they decided they wanted four mothers, four ideal mothers, and each mother represented a certain quality they didn't get from their real mother. And it was just so refreshing to break out of the 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 heteronormative mm. binary, not just gender, but also the constructs that we hold around a family. And as a participant in that person's work, it was it was like, oh, as a as an ideal mother figure, I just need to hold this one, this one aspect. How refreshing. I don't have to do it all and be everything. <laughs> yeah. There's something really, really poignant in just that breaking up that dichotomous one's good, one's bad, you know, one's a victim, one's a perpetrator. Because obviously that isn't how humans and relationships really are, but we, we get so stuck in that. And I, I think a lot of times trauma really makes us see things in a very black and white way or be stuck in a black and white way of looking at a situation instead of opening up a perspective that's a lot more inconvenient, but it's what's real. It's like, yep, they did this. It was bad or mean hurtful and they did this that was beautiful and loving and wonderful so which is it are they bad or are they good you know it's like they're human very much so I've also uh, seen structures as well as lead structures where we bring in parts of self and you could actually have two people play the role of the real mother because for some people and I've just got objects here to show it's like sometimes my, my mother's like this and then sometimes she's like this Right, so we might actually get the personality flip, yeah, so that 
the protagonist can have the experience and the awareness of all the ways and, and grief over all the ways in which one had to adapt oneself to be able to function with, with someone who was like this in the morning and then like this in the evening. You know, I'm thinking how helpful that would be with anyone whose parent was really fragmented from traumatization that, you know, the different ways of relating based on which part was the most forward at that time, being able to just work with all of it. Yeah, we're dad. Yes. Oh, um, dad, uh, uh, when he's drinking and he's the rageaholic alcoholic and then dad at, you know, the rest of the time. Yeah, we can also bring in people's protective parts um, so we can externalize your addict. <laughs> we can externalize your um, shopaholic. We can externalize the workaholic. And so there's, there's other fun, fun things that we can do that can allow insight. And yet what I believe is so powerful about this is the somatization of the capacity to grieve as well as the somatization of the attachment template. And then on a another clinical piece, because I've seen, I've witnessed Bessel and Bessel van der Kolk and Dick Schwartz disagree around mm-hmm. self-energy. And Dick Schwartz says, no, self-energy is something we always have and, you know, we work to access it. And Bessel says, yeah, but for many of my clients, they do not have capacity for self-energy. Like it's just not there. And they have self-light parts and it can be very, so I was struggling to find the word. It can be very, it can add another layer of self-deprecation to become aware of self-energy and not be able to access it. And this is where I've seen the imprinting of an ideal parent figure or parent figures allows for the substrate of self-energy to be somaticized and therefore accessed as someone moves through the world. That's very interesting and thought-provoking. Yes. Yes, I don't want anyone to argue about this. (laughs) (laughs) And yet if you've been in clinical practice for long enough, it's like, yeah, for some folks, you know, the the self-energy, like, wow, we can do that. Or we can, you know, shift the state of the nervous system to how to access more self. We can, uh, yeah. Yeah, there's ways in which to tap into self uh, self energy, and yet for some folks, it's it's just not available. It's an intellectual construct. It's a another thing I use to beat myself up with. Mm-hmm. It's something that other people have and that I struggle with. Well, you know that brings me, and we're we we need to wrap up, unfortunately, but that brings me to. Something I heard Dick Schwartz say last year, 2022, at Trauma Research Foundation Conference, um, which they were, it was in a, a presentation about psychedelics. And he said something to the effect of, I'll just, I'll just sort of, I'm not going to quote him exact words because I, first of all, don't remember the exact words, but also, the concept that I feel he was saying is that some people can not access self-energy without using, and I think he was specifically talking about ketamine. And you and I had talked before we started recording that some people use ketamine 
with psychodrama structures as a, another type of intervention. Can you say a little about that before we wrap up? Absolutely. So there are there is the use of ketamine for folks who experience severe depressive symptoms and it becomes a replacement for the medications that they've tried and just haven't worked in terms of debilitating depression, yeah? And that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about low-dose intramuscular ketamine that causes for one's protector parts to be able to offer some space so that we can begin to explore the internal landscape. And last year, I was fortunate enough to participate in a psychodrama, sorry, I was fortunate enough to participate in a ketamine-assisted psychodrama experience where we played with all sorts of combinations, psychodrama first, ketamine afterwards, ketamine first, psychodrama afterwards, and then ketamine and psychodrama at the same time. And I... What I experienced myself was the psychodrama first and the ketamine afterwards. And the rapid neurogenesis that ketamine facilitates allowed for a depth of imprinting for me. And the work I had done at that point in time was around having an ideal elder. Because if I had have had my very own ideal elder, I would have moved through the world differently. And if my parents had their very own ideal elders you know, life in Australia would have been different for them. And then ever since then, I have a sense of who I am and where I come from that is unshakable. I saw that for other folks in the experience, particularly those who took the ketamine and, uh, while engaging in the psychodrama experience, that it actually allowed them to open up to the experience as a somatic, emotional exploration rather than a cognitive, mechanistic experiment. And what I also saw for those folks was that when it came to the receiving of ideal parents, their psyche was actually open to taking it in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember for one person, he actually said, oh, I can actually tell the ketamine's beginning to wear off because I'm starting to doubt the ideal mother. And I've experienced other people saying that in their psychodrama experiences where there hasn't been ketamine there, where they get the ideal parent and they're like, I can't trust this or I'm skeptical of this or it's not quite landing. Yeah. And the the psychedelic medicine allows not just for our protect allows for our protector parts to stand to one side in such a way that we can actually take in the re-imprinting that's available. Can I ask a follow-up question about that? Sure. So when in that situation when you said low dose intramuscular ketamine, are people away in a psychedelic experience or are they like fully knowing still where they are, what they're doing? Because the assumption and expectation that I would have based on my own psychedelic experiences that were all recreational and many decades ago, but not 
current are only, you know, I've never experienced a psychedelic experience where you aren't like not really here anymore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so of course, you a, don't get to use dosages when you're recreational using drugs. Yeah. You don't have access to that. Yes. So, you know, it's based on the dosing. So there is the blast yourself off into the stratosphere dose of ketamine. There's also the anesthetic dose of ketamine where you're 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 not here at all. Okay. And then there are the, the lower doses. So what happens is each person speaks with the medical provider who's on site and we titrate the dose accordingly for that person. And then we titrate up depending on what is what is the psycholytic dose. For that individual and the beauty about intramuscular ketamine is that in a sense it's actually very clean uh, in air quotes meaning that it lasts between 20 to 40 minutes okay um, during it you feel a plateau if you need a bump you can ask for another dose to to, to bump up the the effects of the ketamine that's helpful to know yeah because i mean i don't think you know i don't know it's still kind of new um, even though many people are very deeply immersed in the psychedelic assisted work, it's still in, generally new to a lot of people. So thank you for explaining and to me. So thank you for explaining that. <laughs> You're very welcome. Yeah, there's uh, <laughs> yeah, on the last night of that particular retreat, we actually had the high dose experience. And that was wonderful. But for me, it was like, oh, yeah, I'm just tripping balls. This is wonderful. But it it, it didn't have the the psychotherapeutic yeah. of the experience for me. Yeah. And yet what was so powerful about the high-dose experience, because there were other folks in the space who didn't have such a pleasant high-dose experience, mm -hmm. the, the therapeutic part is actually when you're coming out and you've got your friends around you and you've got your heart teachers there and you've got people that you can land into irrespective of whether the experience was pleasant or unpleasant. Mm. Yeah. And that in and of itself is really powerful. Something so deep about trust in this whole thing we're talking about today, just something so deep about trusting yourself and others, which I think with attachment injuries trust is what is broken like trust in other humans and yourself yes yeah i think bessel says it in the body keeps the score about how trauma survivors are phobic of their inner landscape mm -hmm. yeah and so to recognize that the intrapsychic corollary of secure attachment or insecure attachment is that I am avoidant with parts of myself. I am anxious towards parts of myself. Uh, I am in a push-pull with parts of myself. And yet I have these adaptive parts that move through the world as if I am securely attached to myself despite my childhood and yet the closer people get to me the more my own internal uh, conflicts start to express relationally and so to go back to the to the map that was imprinted upon us and to change that map 
is incredibly powerful. Linda, I'm so grateful to you for sharing your immense wisdom and so much of what you've learned and the way that you're able to describe it all and synthesize it all so clearly, making really complex things sound simple and understandable. I really am so grateful that you were able to come back again today and and spend time with me (laughs) and our audience, of course, (laughs) selfishly, it's not just for me. No, thank you for the opportunity. And, um, you know, there's so much that I'm passionate about and psychodrama structures yeah, in the tradition of of Al Peso and the way Bessel has shifted it to address trauma and attachment and the ways in which myself and some other colleagues are then taking that work into into our own communities and you know evolving the work, reshaping the work. For me, that's so exciting because because trauma is adaptation, and so is resilience. I'm grateful for what you're doing. And let me just ask real quick, we do have to stop, but are you teaching psychodrama structures or anywhere, or is there anywhere that people can learn from you about that in addition to people working with you as a client? Um, I'm not yet teaching psychodrama structures. However, I am facilitating workshops. At this point in time, I'm doing about four work workshops between 10, uh, between eight and 11 participants per workshop. And we live together in a residential style experience. We eat together and then we, we do the work together. And I typically have folks who bring their friends or bring the people in their life so that there's an element of container that's already there rather than 10 random people who don't know each other turning up. You know, if you'll come with someone or if five of the folks are people who already know each other and are committed to to this, you know, to, to the self-work, then there's a container that's already there in such a way that we can build upon that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I yeah. And then when other people step into it, there's that sense of, ah, oh, you know, there's a there's a trust that's already there. And so folks can contact me via my website, www.linda-tie.com and send in an inquiry form to be placed on a wait list for the next time that I offer this. And if folks could ask or stipulate whether they would prefer a BIPOC only space, that would be really helpful because I do have folks who come because they would prefer a BIPOC only space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then we can we can see what we can make happen. I already know who I'm going to bring. <laughs> Thank you, Linda. Thank you deeply for what you do in the world and for being here today and for teaching us about this. I'm very grateful for you. You're so welcome, Lauren. You're so, so welcome. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.